Today on the show, I'm happy to have Chris Younger. He's the founder of Class 6 Partners. They navigate from scalable to saleable. Today, we're going to be digging into selling your business, preparing for an exit, dealing with wealth creation events. It's really great for any entrepreneur who eventually wants to sell their company. And before we jump into that, I want to hear the story of how you got pulled into being the president of a billion-dollar company overnight. I had uh, started out as an attorney in Silicon Valley and had concluded that really wasn't going to be the right job for me long term. And so I went to work for uh, an investor group and helped them do a roll up in the communications industry. And so uh, I was pretty young, I was 28, 29 years old, and I was the deal guy. And so my role was to go out with a team, help locate acquisitions. And so I did uh, 27 acquisitions over a couple of years. And so we were pretty busy and did a lot of activity. And so you know, my experience to that point had really been on the transaction side, both as a lawyer, as well as just as a corporate or business development person. And the gentleman that we hired to be the CEO for the business that we had put together that was now about a billion two in revenues, a guy by the name of Jim Walker was kind enough and took a big chance and asked the, the guys that I was working for if I could come work with him and started out in strategy, became the COO, and then became the president of that business, working with Jim. And it was, it was transformative for me in a number of different respects. One is I now have a, a mentor and almost a second father in Jim Walker, who has, uh, who's just a brilliant man, but also an unbelievable leader. Just taught me a lot about how to lead an organization. We, I went from managing an acquisitions team of three or four folks to managing about 4,500 people and quite frankly was way out over the tips of my skis and, but having Jim there and as a, both as a mentor and as a backstop and as a coach made it just a lot more fulfilling. Certainly I, I, I still made a ton of mistakes, but I hopefully made fewer of them because of his mentorship. And that really allowed me to, as fast forward in my career. I think the difference for me was the ability to understand not just how to do the deals, but hey, how do you integrate businesses? How do you improve their operations? How do you manage operations? And that was a, just a huge turning point for me. I can see how that role now launched you into helping other entrepreneurs with exiting businesses, preparing for wealth creation. Yeah, we, one of the things that I loved about my job was, and this is one of the reasons Jim brought me on board is I had gotten to know these 27 entrepreneurs pretty well because you're acquiring their company and I just loved working with them. They are, none of them are Ivy League graduates, but they are some of the smartest people I've ever met and most savvy in terms of not just people, but strategy and where and how do you make money? And I loved that job of working with them and, and the role that I worked for Jim in was really to help bridge those relationships. And I learned a lot about how do you make a successful acquisition with an entrepreneur? And when we sold that business in 2003, and then when my partner and I started class six, it was really, we want, we started as a hobby just because we wanted to do a couple deals a year with entrepreneurs. And I just, like I said, I love entrepreneurs, have a huge amount of respect for them. Our whole business model is obsessed with entrepreneurs. And it's as I, as Warren Buffett likes to say, I tap dance into work every day because I get to deal with entrepreneurs every day. 
So let's dig into different types of entrepreneurs or different stages in their business life cycle. So yep. we'll start with like an entrepreneur who maybe has had a business for two years versus one who's had it for 10 years. Yeah, the, probably the biggest issue that we see for young businesses is how do they think about scaling? And in order for a business to be attractive for an acquisition, it has to be scalable. There's a whole bunch of different components to that. There's systems and processes. Probably the most significant component that a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time making the transition to is developing the team, hiring the right people, getting them in the right seats, delegating effectively. Entrepreneurs typically in the early parts of their, the life of their business are successful mostly because of them. They are, they're incredibly hardworking. They're either great at product development or great at sales or great at building the business or any combination of those. And that transition to bringing on a team to help the business scale faster, you know, not only is sometimes a foreign concept to them, it's also difficult because it means ceding control to folks. It's also difficult because sometimes you make mistakes and a lot of entrepreneurs get burned hiring the wrong person as a COO or a CFO. And sometimes they'll, they'll shy back, but we typically see businesses as you're thinking about how to build your business long-term, they have a hard time conceptualizing, Hey, what does that team need to look like? And how do I start planning for that? So let's say I've gotten my people right. I'm now scaling, maybe I'm six years into the company. At what revenue level am I now considering, oh, I could be an acquisition target? Yeah, it'll depend on the type of business and industry. For SaaS businesses, as an example, ones that are growing rapidly, have good SaaS metrics, you know, those can be marketed at five to 10 million in revenues. For other businesses where, hey, the margin profile might not be as rich, the recurring revenue might not be as significant, those businesses probably need at least for the deal type of deals that we do, you're going to need to get north of 20 or 25 million in revenue before you can start to attract institutional attention. So that's either private equity firms or larger uh, businesses. We call them strategic buyers that might be interested. Do you have thoughts on bootstrapping versus raising capital to run a company? That's a great question. And we come across it a lot. A lot of it, I think, depends on whether the the right strategy is to bootstrap or to raise capital. A lot of that will depend on the speed with which that business needs to move and capture market share. In some industries, if you can't scale quickly and grab the market share, you've missed your opportunity to really grow your business because somebody else has taken that market share is now the market leader and you're, you're out in the cold. Other businesses where, I was just talking to one of our clients uh, this week about this, where the competitive pressure is not significant, then bootstrapping is a perfectly legitimate and sometimes preferable strategy because you, you get to grow at a reasonable pace that likely reduces your odds of any catastrophic failures. And it puts you in a position where you get to make all the decisions. Taking on capital, it has a lot of costs, not just the cost of your capital structure, but it's also, hey, you have new oversight who may or may not agree with the direction that you want to take the business. And, and that can be you know, frustrating for a lot of entrepreneurs. Now, let's say I have my company to that level, you said, you know, 10 million for a saucer, 25 million for some other industries. 
is there anything I should have been doing along the way to attract those buyers so that those conversations are happening years before? It's a good question. I think the, at, at some level, I, I tell clients, focus on just building the best business that you can build and it will be marketable. And you don't need to worry necessarily about having a bunch of buyer conversations. We do have clients in, in our consulting program where we'll go out and do some soft marketing, uh, basically talk to the buyers that we think would be likely suspects for them, get a sense for how they look at valuation, get a sense for what they like and dislike. And those conversations can be helpful, but oftentimes I see entrepreneurs and it, look, it's sexy, it's, it's new, it can be a really jealous mistress of having these deal conversations, talking to potential buyers. That can be highly distracting. There are a lot of the buyers that entrepreneurs would talk to are very sophisticated and their demands on you to evaluate your business are going to be pretty significant. And oftentimes that will force an entrepreneur to take their eye off the business ball, which is never a good strategy or a good answer. And so typically what I advise clients is, hey, focus on your business, focus on what's important, you know, get, getting the business more scalable, growing it, et cetera. The deal will take care of itself when the time comes because your story will just be that much better. Preparing for that sophistication and those conversations, should the entrepreneur get some practice in, some skills before getting to those conversations? Or is that where really somebody like you comes in and, and acts as that mediator between? Yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of benefit. I'm, I'm biased, of course, but I think there's a lot of benefit in getting somebody on the team who has managed a lot of transactions. This, the transaction game is complex. It's difficult. There's lots of areas to misstep potholes, areas where you can lose a lot of value. And so I, I liken it to you're playing a game with folks that do this for a living and be like, uh, Hey, trying to do match play against Phil Mickelson. If you're an average golfer and a lot of entrepreneurs, I don't think they understand just how difficult the process is and how many different ways you can lose money going into that process. And so having somebody on your team who is sophisticated, who has been through a lot of deals, who knows the strategies of the buyers and how to counterbalance those and be an effective advocate for you, I think is a good strategy. In addition, obviously at some point that these buyers are going to talk to our clients. And so we do a lot of preparation with our clients for those meetings, these management meetings, we call them multi-million dollar meetings, sometimes 10 million in value or more, because if those meetings go well, a buyer might increase their bid. If they go poorly, a buyer might walk away and not be interested at all. And a lot of what we're doing is just training our clients on here's how this, these investors who are professional investors, here's how they will hear the words that you're saying. And, and again, you, know, you as an entrepreneur may have meant something when you said these words, but what that professional investor heard was just something radically different. So let's, let's work on how we message that. So it is, like I said, we do a lot of preparation with our clients before those meetings to make sure that they're well-prepared and that they're, you know, they're, they're going to make those meetings additive to value versus degrading value. Can you walk us through what a negotiation table looks like? What's the timeline and what are those conversations? Sure. You, the process overall, right? If somebody shows up at our office and says, hey, I'm ready to go to market, first of all, You've got to, we've got to get to know the business because we've got to build a story to tell the market about the business. We've got to build a bidder list for folks that they should, we should be talking to on their behalf and getting them interested in the company. That process 
done at its fastest is four to eight weeks. Then the, the banker, right? We, as the investment bank would take them out to market and that's, you're reaching out to folks, talking to potential bidders about the business, getting them materials and that, that process also is four to eight weeks. And then you're soliciting initial bids and we want to know where different bidders are going to be in terms of valuation and deal structure, even if it's within a range. And then from there, you know, hopefully you've got 20 or 30 or 40 bids. From there, we're going to select, you know, call it five to 10 of those groups to come in and meet the management team. And then those management meetings, it's typically you're going to do a half day meeting and likely either dinner before or after the night before or that night with the bidder so that you get a chance to interact with them in some different contexts. And then after those management meetings, uh, that's where we solicit final bids. And so you might, if you've got 10 of those management meetings, hopefully you're going to get 10 bids. Sometimes people fall out for various reasons. And then you're going to select one or two to take through due diligence and then hopefully close that deal. All in, that process is a six to nine month process. One of the things we're big advocates for, it's one of the reasons why we built our own consulting business called Pathfinder, is stepping into that process without having done good preparation work before you're likely to leave some money on the table because there are going to be things in any business, risks in any business that are going to detract from value. And if you've got an opportunity to identify and then deal with those before you go to market, you're going to, uh, it's going to be well worth that time and energy, I can assure you. So let's say post-exit, dealing with this wealth creation event. And then also this is an entrepreneur, somebody who's been going into work every day, probably working 60 hour weeks, even they never really stop. How do you help them with, first of all, dealing with that wealth creation and then the transition? That's a great question. Obviously on the wealth creation, again, we have a family office that we own and that works with our clients just to help them do that planning because there's a lot that goes into that. You want to do effective income tax planning, effective estate planning. If you have kids, you want to think about what's the right strategy for kids and wealth. We've seen some horrible movies along those lines of kids getting access to wealth, either too much wealth or too soon or not in the right context and haven't had the right training. The second piece is really just education. How do you educate somebody about what it means now to have significant liquid assets? Now you come up with an investment strategy, develop a risk profile for them, and just identify what their goals are. A lot of times, right, our primary objective is make sure they don't lose money and so that they preserve wealth, grow at a modest rate, because they've quite frankly taken more risk than most people have, will have in their lifetime, at least financially. And then the other piece, which is a much trickier one is, hey, what comes next for them personally? What are the things that they need to be contemplating? Oftentimes, at least in our deals, the entrepreneur staying on, so they're going to continue to work for that company. And so part of the education that we do is just, what is it like now to be a CEO where you've got a private equity investor. What does that mean for your business? What does that mean to you personally? What does that mean for reporting, et cetera? Sometimes if they get acquired by a strategic buyer, their job might be in a transition role, which is fine. But the, the trickier one is for entrepreneurs who intend to retire. Maybe after a year or two years of transition, they're going to retire. That one's a lot trickier for folks. And we really counsel our clients to run to something, not away from something. And part of that could be charitable. Part of that could be another business. Part of that could be uh, driven by family needs or health needs. Part of that 
could be, hey, I want to spend more time with my family. A lot of entrepreneurs typically have sacrificed quite a bit with respect to their families while they were running their company. But I've certainly seen the situation where an entrepreneur is a little bit lost after they sell the company. That has become their identity in a lot of ways. And there are various organizations that will help entrepreneurs. And we try to hook our entrepreneurs up with other clients that we have just to give them some feedback and advice on, hey, here's what to expect. And here's how to think about it and plan for that. It's never easy because again, these are, to your point, entrepreneurs are type A. They're driven. They wake up with purpose in the morning and they get after it. Speaking personally, after we sold our company and I tried to retire for about a year, it's really disconcerting to wake up and not have that drive and purpose. And so I as I told my wife, I'll probably work until I'm 90. Those are the people who live longest, right? You wake up with purpose every night. <laughs> it's, I love our game. I love our clients. I love what we do and I would do it for free. And a lot of times we do. So Chris, if our listeners wanted to learn more or reach out for help, how could they do? You certainly just email me, chris at class6partners.com. That's class V-I, the Roman numeral six, partners.com. You can also check us out on the website, class6partners.com as well. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show and everybody for listening to another episode of Failing Success. Make sure to smash that subscribe button. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time.